All right, people, welcome to the Bizzlecast. This Bizzlecast is a continuation of a discussion on X-Men Apocalypse, a movie that was not reviewed well um, as of this recording, um, a little less than a week after it was released, not look like it's going to do well in the box office. In fact, given the you know large number of team-up super movies in the last month and a half or so, uh, I already was worried about the box office totals here, even before the mediocre reviews. However, I did like it a lot more than I thought. You should check out the Bizzlecast Quickie, uh, which I recorded and released a few days ago. At the moment, it is Wednesday, June 1st. But I, I didn't feel like I got it all out. Uh, but I need someone to talk to. And none of my comic book nerd friends have either seen it or are particularly excited about it or both. And so I uh, turned to the man to my left, my father, who saw the movie with me, and leave it to Papa Bizzle to not only find the bright side, but to really, really like this movie. And in his liking of the movie, in more than just a general sense, and the specifics that we've talked about, and you'll hear us talk about, has made me like it more, and I'm actually pumped to do a rewatch. I think with him. I mean, he's already talking rewatch, so Papa Bizzle might be coming twice um, uh, for this one. And just to tease it, he actually thinks this is better than a Civil War on a number of fronts. Um, I also believe it's better than Civil War on a few fronts, um, he thinks it's better overall. We don't really spend too much time making the comparisons just because we love the characters and the drama for the most part in this movie. We want to talk about it. So um, this is definitely a spoiler podcast. Uh, I didn't label the quickie well enough um, that it was a spoiler uh, review. I apologize. I didn't realize at the time that it was until I listened to it. And I was like, oh, man, there's a lot of spoilers in here. So there are spoilers here. We're talking with Papa Bizzle. You know, we spend the first 10 or 15 minutes with me actually criticizing a number of parts of the movie, mostly having to do with the bad guy himself, Apocalypse, which is frustrating because you, know, you can't tell sometimes when I'm referring to the apocalyptic things going around as Apocalypse versus the bad guy. It's a much cooler name in the comic books, uh, and he's uh, you know, a much cooler character in the comic books, but everything that goes on on the X-Men side, and then you throw in Michael Fassbender's yet another stunning performance. There's really a lot of good stuff going on here. And while I probably would still give Civil War the edge from a rating standpoint, you know, I give Civil War maybe an 8, and I give this movie a 7 or 7.5. It's not nearly the distance that critics made it out to be, and I think there's just superhero fatigue. I think if you release this later in the year, like in the summer, which they should have done, because Days of Future Past was a summer release, didn't have any competition, and killed it. It was a better movie, obviously, but, you know, coming right after Batman v Superman, Deadpool, and X-Men... Um, or I'm sorry, and Cap, we really never had a chance. But there's a lot of fun stuff going on in this movie. Sophie Turner and um, Evan Peters being right at the top, and the young X-Men in general were excellent when they got the chance to be. And so I'm, you know, actually optimistic about the future. I just hope the, the, the movie does well enough and makes just enough money to ensure that they keep making these movies. So without further ado, I bring you Papa Bizzle. And, uh, yeah, once we, get, once I get the critique out, it, we start turning around. So enjoy the podcast and, uh, here we go. Okay. So it's been three and a half months since Deadpool. And since then we've had three team up movies from the three major comic book studios in reverse order, X-Men, Captain America, Civil War, Batman v Superman. And, you know, they were all disappointing in various ways. Um, it, it, in some ways, Batman v Superman was the least disappointing because I expected absolutely nothing out of it. Uh, well. um, and so I, I hated it, like I've said in the podcast before, I hated it exactly as much as I was expecting to hate it. 
or or, or at least I, I guess I should say it, it was as bad as I thought it would be. Exactly. Yeah, I, I don't think it's I don't think it's it's a hateable movie. It's just a yawner. I think we're going to see some Batman v Superman uh, and Apocalypse comparisons. I know you don't agree, and I don't agree with it, but I think we're going to see it. Captain America has sort of gotten the pass, um, which is interesting for a movie that's so much about big action set pieces mm-hmm. instead of character development, which the Russos did so well in The Winter Soldier with a smaller cast. Um, and... Uh, you know, I, I've seen the movie four times, and, and Bizzlecast listeners, you know I see these movies a lot. A, because I'm going to be doing multiple Bizzlecasts about them and really want to be serious. I need to see it at least, I think, three times, these movies three times. Yeah, right. Um, I ended up seeing it a fourth just because uh, my little cousin, who I've been waiting to see these comic book movies with when he got old enough, is finally old enough now and is into it. And so me and his dad, my cousin Phil, Phil, who's going to be on uh, Bizzlecast 50, uh, which may or may not have come out when you listen to this. I'm not sure about the release order yet. Um, but Phil, who did the Creed podcast with me, uh, and we went to go see it. And, you know, it, it wasn't one of those movies that kept getting better. Like, it didn't get worse. But I, after, you know, even three viewings, I was like, okay, I've kind of had enough of this. Um, and uh, it, it's really a lot less deep than it purports to be. And and w- And when you say that, I mean, it becomes... A lot, lot, lot less deep after you see X Men, in my opinion. It becomes a little bit like Cracker Jack after you see X Men. I mean, X Men is kind of deep and heavy, and it makes it makes Captain America seem kind of kind of lightweight. Yeah, I mean, it just it, it depends where you want the heaviness. I mean, you know, Captain America and Batman v Superman attempted political discussions. Um. But neither really achieved it. I mean, Batman v Superman was way off. They didn't even get close to the finish line. Right. Civil War, at least, you know, threw some interesting balls in the air. Um, you know, but if you've been following these characters in the lead up to the movie, you kind of knew where it was going. Um, and then you have a villain, and you know, in all three movies, have really, really disappointing villains. Um, well, it, I I don't agree with that. Yeah. I think X Men had a great villain. Oh, you liked? I mean, I liked. Yeah, I liked Apocalypse, but it wasn't exactly subtle. Um, <laughs> no, no, he <laughs> he was not subtle. Right, he was not it, subtle. It, it was really the X Men version of, of Ronan, who's the bad guy in Guardians of the Galaxy. I mean, they're both blue. They're both psychotic. They're constantly yelling all the time. Oh. Um, but uh, for for me, the I, I just like that that Egyptian thirty five hundred year old deal. I thought that was that was very cool. And here's the thing: I don't think X Men's getting credit for, at least not from a lot of sources, is that aesthetically. It just has a little bit more vibrancy and in, in life to it mm-hmm. um, than is the case in those other two big movies, and e- even more so than past X-Men movies. And, and there's an amazing scene early on um, and uh, uh, where, you know, the, the whole beginning sequence of, uh, of Apocalypse's, you know, early genesis in ancient mm-hmm. Egypt and how he mm-hmm. switched to Oscar Isaac's body and then the, collapsed in on him. But we get this amazing, like, Stargate-ish type, you know, uh, you know, Egyptian myth and history meets, you know, fantasy and supernatural thing, you know, energy lines going everywhere and the, the pyramids being able to move and open up and, you know, there's a lot of pyramid stuff in sci-fi um, and, and they nailed it in this movie. And then and that led right into what I call the CGI uh, roller coaster or carnival ride that Brian Singer <laughs> does so well. It's in all yeah. of his movies. 
when they introduce the main theme and but it always is different it has to do with you know like the sort of aesthetics of the movie and and this to- took us all the way from ancient egypt through history to the modern day so all right well we'll put aside big picture stuff for a second because the one thing i do want to talk about is the oversaturation problem that you know me and that and others have been talking about since right. really since the Bizzlecast started um and uh and you know why we need more movies like Creed, Martian, and uh, you know I mean Ultron was a comic book movie, but it it's really feels more like a Whedon movie first and a Marvel movie second. Mm-hmm. So I, I almost put that in a different category. And then you've got Star Wars, which is also a franchise, but as flawed as the new movie was, at least it was just nice to get back in that universe. And but real quick, do a couple minute overview of Apocalypse. Now I already released my. Um, 23-minute uh, Bizzlecast qu- uh, quickie right. um, where I gave it mostly a glowing review. Now, I- I- I'm very biased by being an X-Men guy, um, but I've been open in that review and online that there's a lot of fan service in this movie. A- and if I wasn't a huge fan, I don't know if I'd like it as much. In fact, if this if I had high expectations and the reviews had been like amazingly good and I saw it, I would probably be super disappointed, but I went in with such low expectations, you know, just again, you got to learn, everyone needs to learn this lesson. You got to go in with low, manage, or at least managing your expectations. And I, I enjoyed it. Um, although my expectations weren't Batman v Superman low. I was still hoping it would be entertaining. And it was, there was so much emotion in the movie and, you know, well, and, and plus, plus there, there were there were real character arcs in in the movie for for more than a handful of of the characters. I mean, it attempted to do what Civil War didn't or couldn't. Right, it, and I was just going to say that you, you didn't have those kind of character arcs in uh, in in Civil War. Yeah, I mean, they tried to sell character arcs in Civil War with. Um, it, like individual scenes, so you had Vision and Scarlet Witch in a couple of short scenes, and you had the Spider-Man intro scene, and then you had you know some scenes with Black Panther. I mean, they did a nice job of spreading out the scenes, but no one got super deep in that movie, right? And uh, you know, I mean, Ultron's the first time where we really see what these people are fighting for from a personal standpoint. Yeah, that's why it was important to give Cap a love interest and have his two buddies together at least briefly. Mm. And then you really know what Cap's fighting for. Um, and, uh, you know, with X-Men, it, but there was just some incoherence to the, the, the logic of of it. I mean, you spent so much time with Magneto's, you know, yet another tragic Magneto story. And because it was well done, I love Fastbinder. By the way, I, I mentioned my, my podcast over and over again. I don't know what it is, but Singer knows how to shoot Fastbender. I mean, he just looks at whether he's just a dude with a beard in a factory or he's flying with a full Magneto costume. <laughs> I mean, he's just so chiseled as it is, so, you know, has such a, a distinct face, but Singer <laughs> just knows how to shoot his physicality <laughs> um, really excellently, uh, among others. And then he was just like a slave of, of Apocalypse. I think, you know, I, I, if it were me... I would have dialed back the whole recruiting thing because the thing that Civil War did better was the recruiting was funny. You know, Renner coming to get Scarlet Witch had some laughs, but the Spider-Man one, huge laughs. You know, introduction of Ant-Man. Um, whereas this was like, I got to pick up this mutant. I'm going to give him power. I'm going to pick up this mutant and give him power. I think, and this is me, someone who's writing a piece of genre uh, literature right now, 
they came up with the idea of the four horsemen, or I should say, they they settled on the idea of the four horsemen, and they're like, okay, we're gonna have to work everything else through this, mm-hmm. rather than seeing that there wasn't really anything implicitly cool about them being horsemen, especially because they didn't ride horses or anything like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. uh, you know, it, it seemed totally unnecessary. Um, and Magneto must have been mind-controlled because in the comics, he's as smart as Xavier is. No, but but but, but wait. I mean, um, you, you'll correct me if I'm wrong because I'm, I'm an inch deep in this stuff and you're 12 miles, but uh, Magneto in most of his carnations has always been just kind of a, a mini-me of Apocalypse, hasn't he? I mean, he's, he's the one who's always just on the cusp of, of destroying humanity because of his, his profound disillusionment in humanity, right? I mean, he's, he's not that far from... Well, he has and, motivations, though. He, he has deep motivations from his parents being killed and persecuted to him and mutants being killed and persecuted. Apocalypse has no motive. Well, yeah, he does because he's he's completely disillusioned in what it's it's like when Apocalypse is like when when God um, got so pissed at at the at the Israelites for for the golden calf. Yeah. And they're implying that that was probably Apocalypse that did that too. I mean, that's what they're they're trying to bring religion into the movie. I just don't think they they just could have made it more interesting. Um, let's, he had no personal stakes. Let's put it that way. As far as we can tell, he was an evil mutant, a super mutant since the beginning of time. You right. know, there, we don't get the thing is you didn't even need the Magneto sob story if you've seen the previous movies. And so, you know, it felt like at times in this movie, you have to have seen the previous movies to know what they're talking about. And other times where they're like, you know, redoubling back on the story, like Magneto suffering. Although, you know, after the events of the first two of the new cast, it was nice to see him try and be peaceful and (laughs) for his family to be killed, not just because his powers were revealed, but he saved a man's life with his powers and but you know that that wasn't enough. They had to come after him and kill his family. Well, but but it shows it shows how how deep and and and, and virulent the uh, the the mutant racism is, right? Right. But 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 when Apocalypse came to power, even many thousands before Egypt, which we saw, he was the only mutant or, or the only mutant known to himself. Um, and so you know his his. Quest for global domination makes as little sense as Ultron's, which you know means almost none. But the difference is in Ultron. Ultron has a motive in that he was an AI who's trying to become more human, even while he hates humans, um, and, and rule over them and evolve them, as he says. Uh, you know, Ultron has sort of a grudge match against Stark, and and he's trying to escape the bounds of you know being a computer system, advanced computer system. Apocalypse has has no such motives, and I think we can see that with the you know he launches all the nukes in the air. You're going, oh man, I mean, here's Judgment Day all over again, Terminator style. Nope, <laughs> he launches them into space to get rid of the Cold War, which was brilliant, and that was the perfect. And again, as a writer, that was the perfect place to take the movie in a different direction or at least briefly mislead us that maybe apocalypse isn't just so one dimensionally evil without any sort of personal stakes. Yes. That maybe he did have a plan and maybe it was an evil plan because then what does he do? He then has Magneto start destroying the entire earth with his powers. So I'm not really sure, you know, why, why disarmament was a priority, but just to wrap this all up, you know, because 
Apocalypse is equally like this in the comic book, so I didn't care at all. Mm. He, he, he's doing it just to screw with people, you know, even while he's going to destroy them. But my point is, everything with the villains uh, is the least interesting part of X-Men, which is another way to say yes. one of the things that X-Men does better than the other two movies are the emotional stakes. Yes. So I'm going to hand it over to you for a couple minutes because I've been talking a lot. And we both really like the characters in this movie. So go ahead on a, you know, a character or two, a relationship or two that you really liked, sort of as a, um, a gateway to, you know, about why they got some emotional character stuff more right in this movie than in, in more recent ones. Go ahead. Well, I think you know, the emotional favorite for me is um, Fassbender's uh, uh, hiatus in, in Poland with his, his new, new or newish family. And it could have been so emotionally manipulative, but they just played it beautifully. Go they ahead. did. I mean, it was a really extended segment. Yeah. But you know what I mean? In, in lesser hands, you would have been rolling your eyes at all that. But yeah, and there wasn't once where I, f- I felt like I wanted to roll my eyes. I thought it was really well scripted and well-directed. It was like, like a mini-film almost. It feels like it was a very long time. It probably wasn't. It'd be interesting to know how long that segment is. Or maybe it's, they do it in, in a couple of different uh, cuts. And it's, uh, it's not all, conti- all contiguous. I can't remember. But uh, anyway, the, the whole thing with his being a factory worker and the extraordinary relationship he had with his daughter and his wife, I, I thought that was great. That was, it was... You know how much we loved uh, the the Hawkeye retreat to the to the pastoral setting to be with his with his right, family, right? right? Yeah. Which which one was that? Ultron. In Ultron, right? Yeah. So it's very reminiscent of that, but even it trumps it. You should pardon the expression. Um, and uh, <laughs> Mag- I, Magneto for president or Magneto <laughs> for the Republican uh, Party nominee. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be a lot better. Way better. Smarter. So, so I really appreciated that uh, the insertion of, of that whole um, uh, character arc with his with his new family. That that was. And don't forget, we had Apocalypse taking him to Auschwitz, where he blew up Auschwitz. Yeah. Um, I mean that that's so on the head. It's you know it's so on the nose as to be not on the nose. If that makes sense. Uh, say say a little bit more. You know, meaning it's ridiculously obvious symbolism, you know, but but they weren't even going for that, which is what was great. It was just, Apocalypse couldn't possibly comprehend the subtleties of what he went through in Auschwitz and even what it means to be a Jew and so forth. Right. He just knows that Magneto has suffered as both a Jew and a mutant, and I guess Apocalypse being able to just sort of, um, you know, read all global satellites and and so forth. And, I mean, he, he's like like Ultron, he was connected to the internet. Probably you have to imagine or have access to it right. through his powers of just reaching far. But I guess what I'm saying is why. Why do that? I mean, why bring him to Auschwitz, have the scene in Auschwitz, and then have him destroy Auschwitz? Well, I think they were trying to do um, some, in terms of uh, Apocalypse bringing Magneto into the Apocalypse camp, I think they were trying to do something more subtle than, than mind control. I think he wanted to, uh, to just insert, um, my alarm's going off, so you'll, you'll cut this okay. out. Um, he wanted to insert Magneto there to ensure that he would um, reaccess his his rage, and and therefore join Apocalypse in his you know crusade, 
And I thought I thought it was just a more subtle approach than just just mind control with the with the vapors and stuff. Which again, you need to see all three of these reboot movies to get because in First Class, which was the first one, when he when he first discovers Magneto, I mean Magneto in First Class for the first like you know. Uh, quarter of the movie is just going around killing Nazis right. and trying to figure out where Kevin Bacon is, who was a mutant Nazi who killed his mom and like tortured him and so forth. And uh, Professor Xavier, young professor, cocky, cocky, sexy, suave, whiskey drinking, a young version of uh, of Professor Xavier, played amazingly by James McAvoy, who we'll get back to. Um, when he activates Magneto's true power by going into his most treasured memory, which was lighting the Hanukkah candles with his parents before they died. Mm. And they show it in like a dream, dream thing and, and, and with amazing, just like lighting and music, not corny. And it looks like Fastbender is going to tear up and then it pans to McAvoy. McAvoy is like on the verge. I mean, he's crying on the verge of like really crying because he, he feels how strong that memory is and then all the suffering that came after that. So it's interesting that, you know, his power was unlocked by, by Professor X through his happy memories and, and Apocalypse was doing the obvious, but it fits because even at that time, Professor X, uh, James McAvoy tells, tells Magneto, um, you know, you have to find the place. I always mess up the line. Matt, Matt knows this one, but it, it's something about between bliss and rage is like, you know, that's where you find, find your, your, your power. Meaning it's not like a, you know, a Jedi or Buddhist thing of like, you must get rid of all your fear and all your rage. It's like, it's like, no, you got to find a balance I see. in between it. And I so see. the rage part is what apocalypse, you know, I guess was able to pull out of him. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. Again, it didn't all add up, but it looked great and, and, and it was very affecting. Um, but I guess, you know, Magneto was basically just a zombie for the rest of the movie, right? And then he just turns back to the good guys at the end. Right. Right. Because of, uh, of, um, of Raven's get, uh, Raven's getting to his heart sort of, right? Yeah. I, I just, I don't think the, um. Uh, well, well, maybe we'll, we'll save the final scene uh, for a little bit, but uh, yeah, I, I, you know, the fact that I didn't realize immediately that Storb changes sides because she, her, you know her childhood hero Mystique is getting tortured—they just didn't sell the turns quite well enough. Again, as a comic book reader who knows these characters, it, I don't need it to be oversold because I already know that, that that's the case mm-hmm. and what their personalities are. Now, you who haven't really read the comics but know some through me, but you know it still worked for you. Um, and so this movie, um, I just want to throw this out there, and then I want to ask uh, another character from you. Uh, it's just real quick: is that this movie tries to really flesh out a huge number of characters. Whereas Civil War just says, okay, we're going to do a minor fleshing out of all two. the characters. Oh, well, well, but there, there was an introduction of two, two new characters in, uh, right. in uh, Civil War. And in this one, there's an introduction of, what, the, the, young, the young cadre is, what, four? Or there's just more? Right, okay. So Elizabeth Olsen, who plays the Scarlet Witch, she's 26 or 27 in real life. Which makes her slightly older than Jennifer Lawrence, if you can believe it. So, if you look at all the X Men and new X Men characters, Ma- um, McAvoy and Fassbender are all- the only ones who are really adults in real life. <laughs> you know, I mean, twenty six is adult, but you know, she- Jennifer Lawrence twenty six, and and the new X Men, Scott and Jean, and and 
Alexander Ship who played Storm and uh and and Nightcrawler all, all those kids are like in their late teens like 1920 at the oldest now but when they were filming like 17 or 18 a lot of them um so uh, to sort of double back but move forward with the character question a what did you think of the new X-Men as a whole just the idea of bringing them all in at once b did you think it worked and then c who did you, of them did you like the best? So right. go ahead. Um, what, what was the first question of the three? Did 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 it work? I guess A, a and B are, are one part, which is which is yeah. Did it? Uh, you know, did did it work? And and why did it work? I right. guess would be the question. Yeah. Even though um, we didn't get much in the way of backstories for for the new crew right for for, for the most part i mean you had some uh, uh, you know scott and alex backstory because they're brothers but um there really wasn't much compared to like the spider-man backstory that that we got in uh in in civil war and you know i usually for me m- more is more as far as backstories go but it, it, despite that I, I really like this new crew a lot i thought they were really interesting characters um, I, uh, I really couldn't take my eyes off of, uh, Kurt Wagner played by Cody Smith McPhee. I thought it, we had no, we had like zero backstory in him, right? Yeah. And Nightcrawler is one of the most popular and long lasting characters in the comics. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, was amazing when Alan Cumming played him in X2, yes. which is the very first scene of the movie is, is Nightcrawler who uh, you find out later is being mind controlled because he is a good guy is taking out every single Secret Service agent in the White House and almost assassinates the presidents by teleporting throughout the White House is glorious. And this, yeah, Cody Smith McPhee did, did him justice. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one thing that's a little ironic for me is that you know how much I love Alan Cumming. I always have loved him. Um, and I found his, uh, his portrayal of Nightcrawler back in the day as being kind of mesmerizing. But he, he had a pretty creepy there's another adjective some a creepy edge to him they dialed back the makeup for sure no, i'm talking about his, the way he emoted oh really i yeah, thought the he's he like this you, you have to rewatch it he's really the sweetest guy i mean he you know he turns halle berry as storm who's gotten very bitter at the world their friendship he turns her around is, isn't he like very frightened the, the character back when when Cumming was playing him. Well, he's frightened at first because he knows he did a bad thing, even though not by his choice. And then when you have Jean Grey and Storm coming after you, I mean, I, I would put you know that's what's great about X two is you know Marvel's just learning that they should have female superheroes. Back in two thousand three, who were the two main X Men in terms of leadership and doing shit and taking charge? Were Jean and and uh, and Storm. Uh, played by Halle Berry and um, and Famke Jensen. I mean, they're just going around taking names and using their powers, and so he, he's frightened by them at first, but they immediately embrace them, embrace him. And you know, it's important about the X Men that they embrace one another, not just because they can do different things, but the some that truly look completely different. And they've nailed that in every single movie up till now. They're never scared of, in this new movie, or, or scared is not the right word, because you can be scared or uncertain by things, but they're never disgusted by him, you know? He's mm-hmm. immediately welcomed into the family. So there's something about this, this new version um, 
that uh, Singer and, and Cody Smith McPhee do of, of Kurt Wagner, Nightcrawler, that, and it doesn't have anything to do with the actor. It has to do with the way the, the, the character is, I think, scripted and, and, and realized by the director. But it's, he's just more appealing as, uh, uh, I, I was going to say, a person. I, no, he's a per- no, no yeah, this is between person and human. This is important. Oh, okay. Every, everyone's a person. Okay. There, you've got humans and mutants. But you also can use human in the general sense to talk about all of mankind, which includes mutants. Right. But they're all people. They're all, you know, like the same way, um, like Data in Star Trek, like an android, an yep. advanced android. He's a person. He's not a human. He wants to be a human, but he's, he is a person in terms of how he's treated, in terms of his rights, you know, as an individual and, and, and you know, being equal to humans if not human. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's the problem. The, I mean, what's interesting is this all gets set off in, in first class when young Xavier, 1963, he's getting his PhD writing about mutants and, and, and genes and, you know, evolutionary biology at Oxford. Mm-hmm. And that's where he comes across the tension of Moira McTaggart, played by Rose Byrne, who uh, their little flirty relationship in this movie was great. Um, but uh, but that's where he comes to the attention of, of people because as a researcher, he, he's just pointing out the differences, but it's interpreted by humans who are scared of mutants as if he's saying that they're superior and they should rule over the humans, which mm-hmm. of course Magneto's and other actions give um, g- give uh, you know value to or, or whatever, even though that's not. And so it takes a while for for Professor X to realize that you know he has to balance talking about difference with talking about similarities, right. um, and not seem like the mutants are going to be supplanting the humans or. The problem is they could if they wanted to, right? And this is the big tension is that you know, they have to voluntarily want to not supplant the humans because they they're powerful enough to do so. And so anyway, circle all the way back. Yeah, Nightcrawler's a total freakish-looking mutant, but it's just so appealing in the book. And in both times we've seen him with the different characters, the makeup, the way they do it, they make this one look way more human. He had a hipster haircut, which was great. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, you know, his, like he's hiding his face, which is, makes a lot of sense. Um, but the uh, you know the, the mutants are, are are trained from a young age by Professor X to be accepting no matter what they might look uh, like. Yes, go right. ahead. So I really enjoyed that character a lot, even though I, I was given no no backstory, um, which would have made me probably love it love him. I mean, they threw uh, origin stories out of the door, um, and the only reason we had to see Scott Summers have that breakdown in high school. Right. Is that you need to do that just once in every X Men movie, or at least the ones that take place in, in the near present, right. um, in order to, you know, if there's someone who's really never seen an X Men movie before, you need to communicate how scary it is for the person who th- that starts happening to as an adolescent almost always. And at the same time, uh, why other people w- would be and have, have a good reason to be scared of them uh, as well. So yeah, they, they. I mean, Gene was already at the academy. Nightcrawler, we know, was a circus freak. That's the, that's the same as in the comics. Um, I thought they communicated all that stuff well. Yeah, and and then uh, Evan Peters' version of uh, Peter oh. Maximoff and Quicksilver. Oh, he's so good. Uh, v- very lovable. Um, I, I, you know, probably the 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 funniest. Of the characters, I would say a lot, a lot of really fun, um, subtle humor. 
coming out of that character and the, those those devilish eyes of his, his playfulness. I, th- I thought that was a great character. So, but he's just such a good kid. And he's so loyal, right? And, you know, especially when it comes to his friends, he's completely fearless, mm-hmm. but not afraid to have fun. You know, and this has been the I, some of the complaint about X Men over the years is that a they don't always know even with Brian Singer how to use their powers on screen. Mm-hmm. Like compared to say the first Avengers movie, right? Which is an unfair comparison because that was virtuosic to you know the nth degree to make all that work. Um, but you know Singer usually is pretty good at that. Um, but you know it, it's cool to finally have an X Men superhero who can be brave and daring and do you know brave and, and good things, but also be enjoying it at the same time. Right? It, you know, like you need as I've said. Often the best comedy in a movie is during the most dangerous moments because both the characters and the audience need the tension to be broken, right? Right, right. And then um, Sophie Turner uh, as Jean Grey. I mean, she's. Um, uh, I kept. I, I felt that. I think they did this on purpose. I felt frustrated by her through a lot of the story because she was like scared of her own shadow and scared of her own shadow. And but then, uh, nope. <laughs> right, right, but then, right, and then all of a sudden, she the the girl grows a pair, and uh, she becomes like the 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 big the big hero of the story. So you can see, I guess, a little bit of where her character arcs going after they they take her that distance from a young, really attractive woman um, uh, who's a bit scared of her own shadow to what you know to her being a the phoenix. Yeah, she has such a great beauty to her. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, she looks pretty similar to when she was first on Game of Thrones as 13 or 14, just having such a young face. Um, but to see her play a grown-up and not be just oppressed and beaten down as a female sex slave, essentially, in Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. it was so great. As you know, I was predicting she was going to be great, even though I hate Game of Thrones. Right. But I always say to people, I you know, I love... People say, oh, it has great characters. I said, no, it has great actors. Mm-hmm. It has Peter Dinklage, has Amelia Clark, has Lena Headey. Yep. It has um, Sophie Turner. It has um, the guy who plays Rob Stark has been in, in some of the Disney live-action movies. It's like The Prince in uh, Sleeping Beauty or whatever. He's been in some, some great stuff. I mean, there's a lot. Charles Dance is in it, you know, legendary English actor mm-hmm. who was probably the best part of um, Imitation Game, actually, busting <laughs> Cumberbatch's balls for two hours straight. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Also, Charles Dance is the evil uh, assistant to the Prime Minister in the Ali G movie, you know? Mm-hmm. Who at the very end he makes <laughs> make, turns him into a cross dresser as as punishment and dance around. Right. Charles Dance, he's a legend. He's fantastic. So yeah, so so Charles Dance, Lena, so Lena Headey and and Dinklage are brother sister in the show, and he's the dad. Mm. Um, but anyways, that's just got great casting. This movie had great casting. Sophie Turner was awesome. Yeah, and it's all about mirroring. You know, I mean, it, I love mirroring in movies, but. In order to love mirroring in movies, you have to, A, see all the movies. This is the case with The Matrix as well. Sometimes multiple times to get all these meanings in, in mirrorings. And also like a little bit of heavy-handedness uh, if it's done well. And, you know, when uh, right before, spoiler alert, right before Magneto's child and uh, his daughter and wife get killed, by bow and arrow. I love how they just had a bow and arrow lying around, but um, <laughs> made completely of wood with n- no metal arrowheads. 
Uh, no, bow and arrow is very popular these days. Hawkeye is a fan favorite. Arrow uh, is and totally they make an arrow. They totally make it work in an urban context. It's hard. It actually makes more sense than a gun because it's quiet. Um, well, in in the second season of, of Daredevil, with the introduction of um, Electra uh, yes. and all the the nasty uh, ninjas that are after her and Matt. Um, there's lots of lots of bow and arrow action. Yeah. So, anyways, Sophie Turner. So, right. So, so Magneto's young daughter starts to freak out that they're going to take her dad, and she dies a minute later. But before that, it had been sort of hinted that she can talk to animals. We saw earlier that she was sort of talking to a deer, mm-hmm. but it could. But they left it open, and then you're like, no, nope, she's definitely a mutant. You know, she. It was. They went all. You know, the birds with it. And you know had had birds flying in everyone's faces and so forth, um, which ultimately caused the chaos to for the arrow to be accidentally shot. Um, but uh, you know her mutant powers manifested strongly earlier on because of extreme stress, and that's exactly how it is in the comics. Which is that hmm. if you have a mutant power from twelve from to twelve to like sixteen, um, is usually where all this manifests. And but it can manifest earlier because of extreme stress. Um, although even when you're 16, you know it, it's usually sexual uh, stuff uh, that launches it mm. um, in adolescence. You know the the same thing that fires your, uh, you know your uh, your pheromones and your um, uh, what are they called? Um, your hormones. Your hormones. Uh, it, it can trigger anyways, you know. So, so we saw that Magneto's daughter had the mutant gene. It triggered because of stress. And then, you know, we also see Sophie Turner, who can't control her powers, but then gets super powerful, but under super control when she is extremely stressed at the end. Mm-hmm. But the difference is... In X-Men 1 and 2, Jean Grey, who's much older, who's like supposed to be in her 30s then, uh, has just been starting to get a handle on her power and just started to get more powerful. And so this being the, the first and only movie after the whole timeline was reset after Days of Future Past, as I said in my review, Sophie Turner's display at the end... W- w- was more powerful than anything that Famke Jensen did as an older Jean Grey until she sacrificed her life and, and stopped a giant tidal wave and, and to get her, her people out on, on the Blackbird and then was overwhelmed by the tidal wave. And so this was definitely Brian Singer saying, I've been teening, teasing the Phoenix for 16 years. Oh. And I'm finally going to make it happen. And whether they want to explore the Dark Phoenix saga or, or, or you know, I mean, mm. Simon Kimberg has already said that they want to do um, a Phoenix-based X-Men movie. So the next movie, she could be the, the lead, at least dramatically, or from a story standpoint, hmm. because Jean Grey is such a powerful and interesting character. So uh, that's the thing I give them credit for, is with all of the action in The Winter Soldier, I feel like I had seen a lot of it from clips and trailers by the time we got to the theater. Um, and, with the, and with the action of, uh, with X-Men Apocalypse, you see, yes, some of the very stylized shots like Psylocke cutting the car in half and Storm doing her thing with the lightning we had sort of seen, but they held back on the Jean Grey. And, and, and uh, you know, as you were sort of getting at, um, I'm going to throw it back to you, it does seem earlier early on like they're gonna stick to the same Jean Grey like oh she's so powerful but we're never gonna see it because of her her insecurities and so I ask you 
as a very young actress, Sophie Turner, I guess it's like 17 or 18, do you think she pulled off that transformation throughout the movie, like in a sort of a believable way? I don't know if you can call it a transformation. It's it was more it was more like a. Um, she's twenty. She's twenty, by the way. Go ahead. Oh, is she twenty? And she's English as well. Uh, it was more. Um, oh, what's that word? Uh, where, where it's something's just two things. It's just zero or or one begins with a B. What is that? Binary. Yeah, it, it's just it was seemed like a, a a binary event where she's scared of her own shadow, scared of her own shadow, and then all of a sudden she's. Uh, She's she's you know taken over. She's taken control and s- saving the day. I I don't know if I remember now. You know I've only seen it once, so I may be forgetting. I don't I don't remember seeing her evolve. Yeah, I, again, this is a having to see all the movies thing, but I disagree. Even in the context of this movie, I mean, she does have a horrible bad dream, and Xavier has to comfort her. Although, if you notice, even while Xavier is comforting her and saying that's just a dream, by reading her mind, he can see that she's reading some horrible future, uh, and that is an accurate future. And so, she's smart enough to realize that the professor's comforting her, but not saying that she's not seeing anything. And really, compared to Famke Jensen, she was pretty zen through most of the movie. I mean, she was a little uncertain, but once she had to start using her power, like, Famke Jensen's constantly scared about, like, going over the side with her power. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I'm not going to do it one more time. Okay, one more time, but then never, you know, that, like, never again. Because, but once, once Sophie Turner is like, all right, I have to take charge. And I love that she was the one taking charge. I mean, she had the whole invisibility thing going, you know, and, and I mean, she was running that mission. Um, you know, obviously Nightcrawler and uh, and um, uh, and Evan Peters as Quicksilver were contributing, but she was really running that whole rescue operation um, w- with her mind control abilities. That takes a lot of energy to like you know be controlling multiple people's multiple people's mind at once. And so for right. me, it didn't seem like a reach because I, I don't know, and maybe just because I've seen her on a couple seasons of Game of Thrones, that even when she's in terrible situations, she has a really strong heart beneath all of it. So I, I I could see why people would think it was binary. I didn't think so, just because I think she's a great actress. Um, but uh, I I could definitely see it. But even if it's binary, it, I mean, w- would you say it was then f- like forced because it seemed binary? No, no. It seemed like you know once it happened, you felt like oh yeah that that's where this whole thing was going with with her. I mean, it made sense. It, because she was so understated for so long, and then she emerges. Um, so it, it, it worked. But um, I, I would like to see it again and, and watch her develop. Because, because it, was, it was kind of a feint for me. I, I, you know, not knowing the comment, I didn't know where she was going. I didn't know how she was going to finally you know, blossom. So... Uh, and just to, just to follow that up and top off my comment from before, they hid Jean Grey's power from us in, in the, all the trailers, and I'm so thankful for that. Oh, uh, okay. Now, right. it, it's not hard to hide her powers in short trailers just because they're not manifested in physical ways. Right. And so it's not like a sexy thing to look at on, on like a trailer. Yeah. It's one of those where you have to watch the movie and follow the character and realize how powerful she is through that. Yes. But the fact that, you know, Professor X was able to get just a single message across to her and her to be able to understand that and interpret it and understand what she has to do and where she has to go and where she has to lead these people. Um, I don't know. Everything was understated in the movie, and yet there was tons of crying. I, 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 
it's hard to put your finger on it. Um, it, it, there were parts where I, I was a little m- mentally yawny for a minute or two, I guess, but I, I never lost focus and I was never cringing, even with all the crying. Whereas Batman v Superman is trying to get you to be emotional the entire time with loud, dramatic music. Yeah, and it's ne- so un- so flat and unemotional, that movie. Okay, so we've talked about some of the young characters, talked about um, uh, Fastbender. I went, we'll, we'll, we'll end the character stuff with Lawrence and, and McAvoy. Um, yep. Although, really quick, I love Nicholas Holt. I wish they had given him more to do as Beast in this movie. Yeah, he really didn't do much. But, in, cause, but part of that is the first two... The first class in Days of Future Past, he was like the fourth lead, essentially, mm-hmm, and had tons mm-hmm. of time. Um, actually, Beast had more screen time than either J-Law or Fassbender in Days of Future Past because he was, you know, sidekick to James McAvoy mm-hmm. at the X-Mansion and doing all the tech stuff and so forth. Um, he also had a, a sexual and other relationship with, with Jennifer Lawrence going back to the first movie. I thought they would explore that here, but they explored it just through looks between the two characters. So how did they get a kind of emotional honesty in a movie that's so over the top and, and somehow it never felt super cheesy or overly emotionally manipulative with all, with all the emotion? Go ahead. How did they achieve that? Um, or, or well, what about it made it work? Like if you could put your finger on like one factor. Like for me, one well, factor is that the main cast was very comfortable with one another. So they're building on five years of, you know, well, actually no more, uh, six or seven years of experience working together. Well, my, you know, my initial inclination was to ascribe it to the skill of the actors. I mean, McAvoy is such a tremendous actor, and, and Fassbender is tremendous. And their, their tears, um, I mean, they just, they just do a great job of, of emoting in, in, in that way. Who, who else cried? McAvoy cried multiple times. Fassbender cried. Uh, Ty Sheridan, as the young Scott Summers, aka Cyclops, cried a couple of times. Right, because of his his brother's death. His brother's. There was another thing. Was, did he, he cry early on when he had his powers? And he didn't know what was going on. I think there was might have been a second time he cried. But yeah, I mean, you know. But it was it was never like bawling. It was like tearing up. It's mostly the guys who are crying, which is great. And then, then you know, you made that great point about uh, the way they they executed J Law's character. I think you you should you should throw throw that in here. Yeah, I mean, we've talked a lot about Jennifer Lawrence over the years. Yep. I always say I love her as an actress. I don't love all her movies, but when I don't like her movies, whether it's Hunger Games or American Hustle, it's never because of her. Like she's never the reason I dislike a, a movie with Jennifer Lawrence in it. Yeah. Um. And, uh, in fact, the four main characters in American Hustle, I love those four actors. And so I don't blame any of those. That was a writing situation for me, personally. <laughs> but I talk about how, you know, and me and Phil talked about this a little bit with, with, with Creed. When we were talking about Stallone gaining wisdom over the years. Mm-hmm. There's something to be said about years under your belt. You know? It's the same, you, know you know why, like, people who have good parents, they're so, they, they hate that their parents are telling them what to do when they're growing up. But once you hit like 25, you realize the parents will write about almost everything. You know what I mm-hmm. mean? And then that, mm-hmm. that cycle continues, right? Um, like, like, for example, I was def- there were periods where I was very defiant as a kid to you guys, mostly just because I was just in various phases of adolescence. 
But in, in retrospect, I don't think I've criticized a whole lot <laughs> about your parenting because you look back and you're like, oh, okay, this made sense. You know? mm-hmm. yeah, well, mm-hmm. all these other people were getting C's and D's and doing drugs and drinking, you know, like, okay, my parents kind of knew how to steer me in the right direction. So then they pass that on to their kids, hopefully. The point being, Jennifer Lawrence, that is a 26-year-old, I don't care how many movies you do or how many awards you win, you can't be an A-plus actor at 26 years old. You just can't. Unless, like, uh, like Shirse Ronan just has a knack for it. Um, Jodie Foster, right, you would, you would have to say, based on her success mm-hmm. as a young person. But, you know, it's like she just hasn't lived... Now, she's getting to the point where she's lived enough years. Once she gets to her late 20s, which she's headed towards, she'll be able to start working in her experience. But I thought this was by far her most understated performance ever. I don't think there's a close second. I mean, this she was really understated, and but I and, didn't think know, she my, was mailing it in. Just to complete my thought, I, right. I never felt that. I know some fans aren't thrilled, but I, I never felt she was mailing it in. I, I would say um, that I don't think it was her doing. I, I my hypothesis is that it was directorial, and that he he wanted, and this this was your your hypothesis that he wanted uh, an understated character to counterbalance the hyper emotionality. Yeah. Yeah, right? you needed someone to be zen. Right, exactly. You know? So I, I think he said, you know, you're, you're going to play her zen this time. And that's, and and that's that, why... That's that, that what Singer's doing. Right, which, again, which is why that really small, quick moment on the plane before the final battle, mm-hmm. and uh, Gene Gray's sitting next to, uh, to uh, Raven, who's in her mystique form, um, which which she has to do when she's fighting. Uh, they talk about in first class. You learn that it takes a lot of energy for her to sustain her human looking form. Mm. And so in combat, where you need one hundred percent, you don't need ninety nine. You need one hundred percent of what you got to win in a fight. She has to go back to that form because she can't be worried about anything else other than surviving. And so if you turn her as Jean Grey says, you know, were you scared in DC referring to the events of um future past where she was going to assassinate Peter Dinklage and then maybe kill the president and she wasn't sure what side she was on, but she was sort of a veteran by then so she just sort of dismisses it and she says no. And then she, you know, but neither side overplays and she just looks right back at Jean and says but in my first mission, I was scared or whatever. You know, like she 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 realized that she needs to do a little bit of a softer sell, um, and she was being honest. You know, I mean she she was being strong and stoic. That's the thing. I thought she was just stoic. I, she was so focused uh, on making things right. It, it came off as stoic and, and solid to me, rather than underacting. But you know, I, it's open to interpretation. Go ahead. No, that was that was the only point I, I wanted to make about about J Law. I think um, was the whole un- understated thesis, the Zen thesis, and why. And so I think that's a really important. I don't I don't think uh, that's been observed by a- anybody out there that I that I've seen. But I I really think it's it's a valid interpretation for what we saw. Um. So all right. Well, a couple characters left. Um. I love James McAvoy. God damn, is he good. He steals every movie he's in, including all three X-Men movies. He's so charismatic. I was thrilled that we got to see him as how he was in the first movie, which is fast-talking, flirty, you know, loves women, 
Um, you know, he was such a like a drug addict and so despondent. In the second movie, we never really got to see it. How right. excited he. You know, he got that Rose Byrne was back in the picture as Moira McTaggart, who was also a love interest and important character in the comics. The Moira McTaggart in the comics is like a doctor slash scientist, but for their purposes, this works better. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll ask the question I'm always asking myself. Why doesn't James McAvoy get more work? Yeah, we talked about that offline a few days ago. I can't remember when it was, and because uh, I, I had mentioned that uh, you know I had just seen him on Colbert and what what a, what a charming guy he is and sweet and all, all of that, um, and we were bouncing around about you know he's not a, something about him that's not a leading man type. But then I I could never really land on uh, an explanation that made me feel comfortable. I I don't know why, really. It, it, I, I'm. I, I really don't have a a theory. I mean, he, you know, he, he doesn't have traditional like hot guy looks. Well, but, I mean, but in he's, the a, real, he's a yeah. he's a nice looking, really nice looking guy. I mean, yeah, in the real wrong. world, he's like at the top of the heap. But I'm saying right. in Hollywood, he's not Tom Cruise or uh, um, you know, like some like Sam Rockwell is another guy. I never understand why he doesn't get more work. Well, no, there, there's a guy who I would go along with the looks thing. I mean, he's kind of. Kind of common looking, kind of ordinary, but I, I don't find McAvoy in in that in that bucket. I think he's got a very interesting face and sure. han- he's handsome and yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, who knows? I mean, he is in stuff. He's just not getting top notch roles. Um, he's a very naturalistic actor. Yeah, he is. Is it possible he's he's getting what he wants to get and? Just turning stuff down because this is all he wants to do? Well, it's very possible, but I'll give you an example. He and uh, last year, in a movie that no one saw, I don't, made almost zero money. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it wasn't marketed at all and didn't get good reviews. Um, he was in a sort of uh, humorous slash slightly scary uh, Frankenstein re-envisioning. Mm. with uh, Daniel Radcliffe from mm. Harry Potter called Victor Frankenstein. And nobody saw it. Let's see. It made a total of $34 million globally. It made $5 million here. It, you know, mm. one of the lowest grossing movies <laughs> ever. Wow. With two very talented leads, you know? And it's like, okay, did your agent screw up? You know? I mean, like... Just as a comparison, you know, Fassbender is a super, 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 superstar. But, you know, I'm not convinced that he has more chops than than McAvoy. It's possible that Fassbender is just more of a chameleon, and that's why he gets more roles. Whereas McAvoy has to play versions of himself. Because what makes him so endearing is his sort of semi-manic, you know, loving, but kind of all-over-the-place personality. Right. Um, Theories? Or are we just going to chalk well, this one up to just not enough roles in Hollywood for? Well, you for know, people? sometimes I think that there, there's some of these guys who, um, they're they're truly artists. They're truly artistic in um, in their in their sensibilities, and they may fall in love with funny, quirky scripts that they may tell their 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 agents to you know that they want that they don't even listen to their agents, and they they want to do it because they just like it because it's. You know, artistic, quirky, 
offbeat, outside the box. So it could be that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm sure he's doing theater or has done theater as yes. well. You have to just kind of assume that with the, with these guys. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it just makes when you do get to see him so much more fun. And he, you know, he, he's the most multifaceted uh, character in, in, in among the main X-Men. Mm-hmm. And so that helps. It also helps that he can be naturalistic in a Brian Singer world where really it, there's not a whole lot of naturalism in terms of the acting. I mean, it's rarely stiff or wooden. Um, it can be occasionally cold and emotionless, as you saw, as we all saw in this movie and have seen even in his better ones. It can be cold and emotionless uh, for almost being too tight um, from a filmmaking standpoint. But you know, he he he's always my center of attention um, in. A, a character that could be very one or two dimensional, you know. I know everything, calm, old, peace loving, wise guy. Right. Um, right. Now Patrick Stewart's able to avoid that uh, by being Patrick Stewart, but McAvoy, as a younger version in a more dangerous time, in some ways, because mm-hmm. people are just finding out about mutants, he, he gets to go much more three dimensional with the character. And so I think the good news here is, and I predicted this before the movie, Fassbender and Lawrence probably move on. Maybe we get some cameos from them going forward. But I always thought McAvoy would stay on. Because seriously, I mean, to be Professor X for 10 or 20 minutes in all these various crossover movies for each movie and get a paycheck and be like, you know, the moral and intellectual heart of the movies and not have to be, I mean, it's just a perfect role, you know? I I compared him to Wolverine and just being able to pop up, you can be on screen five seconds or five minutes or 20 minutes and still contribute so much to the, you know, world building. I mean, that's the key thing is the world building. As I told you over dinner after the movie, there's really only two indispensable X-Men characters. One is Wolverine, because he's just the most popular in terms of like fighting and whatnot, and then Professor X. I yes, mean, you, right. you can really kill off and add any other X Men that you want, but you can't get rid of those two. But mm-hmm. but below those two, you've got Gene Storm and Scott. And really quickly, I thought Storm got co- totally screwed in this movie. Alexander Alexandra Ship, who's very young, hasn't done much. That early scene in Cairo where she's stealing stuff, and we see her her idol worship of, of mystique and she gets to talk in the African accent, but she's speaking Arabic. Um, you know, she was just great. But as soon as she was like mind controlled by, um, uh, by, by apocalypse or whatever, uh, it's not really clear by the way, how he improves all their powers and gets them under semi mind control. Who cares? Right. We, we, we just have to hope. And this will be my wrap up for the young X-Men. If you want to say anything else is that we, it's a great start. We have to hope that these kids get their own movie or movies where we can really develop them. And if that happens, Storm needs to be the first one to be developed because as much as I loved Halle Berry as Storm, there's been criticism they just didn't develop her that much. They made her... Yes, she was powerful, and yes, she was one of the leaders, but in terms of screen time, you know, it was more focused on Famke Jensen and and and, uh, and Hugh Jackman and, and so forth. you got to flesh out Storm because her... She's from Africa. She's an African princess. She's married to the Black Panther in the comics, which can't happen unless Disney reacquires X-Men. We'll get to that some other time, which could happen. But um, 
you know, she's like an African princess, but she's a very, very, very smart and capable leader. The kids love her in both the comics and the early movies where she's played by Halle Berry. So I was a little frustrated by that. The other mm-hmm. villains, including Olivia Munn, who I said before taping this, it, you know, it, com- it completely matches both the coolness and the badassness as well as the sexiness of Psylocke. Uh, Betsy, Elizabeth Betsy Braddock, who is, in my opinion, the sexiest and hottest comic book character ever that's not an obscene Japanese character, you know, wo- mm-hmm. woman who doesn't even look human based on her proportions, you know, right, right. Um, you know, Marvel does a little bit better of a job of having them dress sexy, but not over the top. They nailed the colors. They nailed the costume. I just wish we got to see her kick more ass. Um, and, uh, they had her sort of slink away at the end, which was smart because she's a little morally ambiguous in the comics. Mm. And, uh, she ultimately becomes a good guy, but it's like Wolverine. She has to go on her own journey around the world and different parts of her life. And so I don't know if they think Olivia Munn is a good enough actress to, 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 to really hold her own going forward. Cause we just didn't see it. So you can't really tell. That's right. Um, Archangel uh, didn't even look cool. Didn't know how to use Archangel. It's too bad. He's cool in the comics. And to round out the horseman, Magneto, well, we already talked about him. So uh, he had plenty of screen time. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess I would say, you know, just to quickly about Apocalypse, we'll wrap up. Um, Apocalypse, the character, did they really need Oscar Isaac for this role? <laughs> you know, I mean, he's screaming the whole time. You can't even tell it's him with the, between the makeup and the screaming. No, you can't. It's true. You can't. So, you know, I, I, that... The, but they must have felt like, you know, this is one of those cases where, and this is exactly the same, by the way, with the guy who plays Ronan, whose name is uh, Lee Pace. Yeah, who's right, like, Lee, Lee Pace. He's a veteran, has done all sorts of roles, and is the sweetest guy, if you ever hear him interviewed, just like Oscar Isaac's the sweetest guy, is that with all the makeup and all the yelling and the, just the pure, sheer one-dimensionality. You need a great actor to make it compelling. And, and you might not see it, but if, if there was an alternate universe where we could see alternate, you know, just a r- random person playing Apocalypse, it w- wouldn't have been as good just because these actors know what they're doing with their mouth and their eyes and their face and the way they move their body. I, it, what's really interesting is I, I give huge, huge props for for them making Apocalypse practical and not a CGI character. Yes, that's, that, absolutely. That's a lot of people's problem with Ultron is that he's just so clearly a CGI robot. It yeah. doesn't bother me because it's well rendered and it's very consistent throughout the movie. But, you know, seeing, you know, it was great to see Professor X in the dream fight hand to hand with Apocalypse. That was great. And then Apocalypse, you remember, got super big and like squishes uh, mm-hmm. Xavier. Yes. You know, he's he's that big in the comics, or he can get that big. And I think they maybe should have explored um, doing that more in the movie. You know, ha- have him physically, like, take apart a city, like a, the Hulk or something. And this will lead up to the end. I want to talk about m- the money, and then we'll do final thoughts. Okay. Which is that this movie, if you can believe it, I st- don't understand... You being someone that's not nearly as as obsessed with this number of stuff as I am, so Days of Future Past made hundreds of more millions of dollars than its most of its predecessors, and had a two hundred million dollar budget, right? But instead of doubling it down, they reduced the budget to one hundred and seventy five million, which 
you know, it, it still seems like a lot of money, but every other comic book movie out there is at between two twenty and two fifty. Mm. And while it looked really good, there was a lot of like apocalypse CGI stuff. The thing is, Dad, that's pretty cheap these days. Doing the practical violence is is really exp- is, uh, is is expensive. Well, if they'd thrown another forty to eighty into it, what what would we have gotten? More, maybe just a more epic final battle. Uh huh. Um, or I mean, because everything was either super close up, sort of character based interactions, or these you know giant apocalypse scenes. Right. There wasn't a lot of like you know the Hulk and and uh, giant Iron Man fighting in Johannesburg kind of thing. Like, right. cities crumbled, but we really didn't see any fighting in cities. No, no, nothing. So it's things like that that you really need some more money. Or, like, um, you know, they just, in both The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises, there's some very high-wire stuff involving airplanes and parachutes and swinging ropes that, that a lot, that, you know, with $250 million, Christopher Nolan was able to do that completely practically. Mm. Um, and that was uh, four years ago. So with inflation, it would actually be above that. And so I... I, I <sighs> It's only made two hundred and sixty-five million dollars. Now it had a long opening weekend with eighty million, which is really pretty pathetic for a four-day weekend. Yeah, but no, nobody was going to the movies this weekend. It seemed like. Yeah, but the problem is there's going to be a huge drop-off, and so even mm. given the best statistical numbers, it would be shocking if they doubled their domestic total, which means one hundred and fifty million, which is pretty ugly. That is ugly. Um, and you remember, after we saw Batman v Superman, I, I immediately did the podcast with Matt, and I predicted that even though they opened to the tune of like a hundred and what fifty hundred sixty million for Batman v Superman, something like that, I, right. I predicted. Uh, no, actually, no. It was like two hundred. It was a lot. It was like two hundred million. And I said they're not going to even double that going forward. And I was right. Yeah. They they made I think one hundred fifty million after that initial two hundred. Yeah, you said there was going to be a precipitous drop off. So you know, X Men needs to get more help abroad. Right now, it's thirty percent domestic, seventy abroad. I don't think it's opened in China, but. You know, so that that could add you know sixty to one hundred million dollars potentially. So I still think the foreign total could get it up to five hundred million. But you know, in a movie that seems more popcorny than Future Past, which was a really brainy movie, mm-hmm. um, but for that movie to you know almost match Guardians uh, with seven hundred fifty million dollars a couple of years ago. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, and this 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 lead to the final question of, of oversaturation, which I'm always talking about. And you know, m- my question to you to make this very specific is: if this movie came out in another year with fewer superhero movies, or came out like during the summer when there aren't many superhero movies, do you think it would do better? Oh, I don't have enough uh, data points to make that judgment. I think that uh, audiences are. Are quirky, and I'll go back to the the Creed example. It makes no sense to me right. that that wasn't a more um, uh, a more subscribed movie. It just makes absolutely no sense to me. So I don't know how to read the, those tea leaves of, um, and then you know Deadpool being huge and Guardians being huge. I just don't. I I I can't. I can't connect the dots. I think it was during my my uh, BVS podcast with Matt, uh, where we were t- where I brought up Apocalypse, which was still a few months away at that point, obviously. And I said, uh, you know, I was like, 
Yeah, well, BVS, not well received, made less money than it should, and the fact that Apocalypse is more like BVS than Deadpool, even though Deadpool's in its own universe, you know, I, I felt like that was a foreboding sign that there is a shift here, that people don't want just super dark, huge, apocalyptic, you know, comic book movies for the sake of doing it. Um, and that Civil War benefited really just from the forward momentum of, uh, you know, of Marvel. I mean, no one wants to give Joss Whedon an acknowledgement that there was an Ultron bump the way people openly will acknowledge that there was an Avengers bump after the first one for the solo movies, but that is indeed the case. Um, and, uh, you know, so I guess, uh, in terms of the oversaturation question, uh, we never get fatigued by these movies as long as they're good, but it's possible the mainstream is. Um, any thoughts about w- whether we're reaching that point or whether people just need a breather between these movies? Like, if, if you were behind these movies, like, wh- how would you, you know, try and avoid, um, you know, people just getting just getting kind of bored or, or, or sick of this genre? Well, you know, if, when I look at myself, I mean, I, I, I don't see any oversaturation thing going on with me because if there are actors in a movie, if there are actors that I like in a movie, I, I'm, I'm going to go see them. Uh, and I usually en- really enjoy seeing them uh, execute the, you know, their, the character. So I don't really care myself, but uh, I, I, don't know, I don't know what... Um, it's it's such a you know one one thing I was going to say in a different context before is that it seems like the film world ha, has bifurcated recently where in the old days um, all the movies were movies and then every once in a while you'd get a, a superhero movie or a comic book movie but all the other movies were like or, you know ordinary Hollywood movies right right. I mean, would would you get one superhero movie a year? I, I back in the day, I don't know. No, but, definitely not. Yeah, so it was it was now, now all of a sudden you've got as many comic book superhero uh, fantasy movies, whatever, uh, as you have regular old olden days Hollywood movies. Before two thousand, so since two thousand, there have been essentially forty Marvel movies of various kinds. Okay, just just Marvel, and, just and Marvel. then when you add when you add DC to that. Right, just Marvel. Yeah, so and before two thousand, they had a total of two movies ever. Before they had, yeah, they had Blade so the, in ninety six and Howard the Duck in the eighties. Right, right. That's it. That's it. So the whole thing's become become uh, uh, bifurcated, and there's so many of these, and there's no, uh, you know, there's not not much precedent for it, and it's just built. I mean, it's not like it's a smooth curve from two thousand, right? I mean, there's each year. There's like more of them. Yeah, yeah. This year would have been the most, I think, especially if Gambit hadn't been pushed back. Uh huh. God help us. I hope Gambit gets made. I just here's the thing, though, Dad. You know, and maybe this will be my closing thought. Um, I, I'm not even. I was gonna do some number stuff in terms of comparison to the even terrible X-Men movies, like the first Wolverine movie. The fact that this might not even match that. I don't even want to go there. It's so sad. But, um, uh, what was I gonna say? Oh, I just, uh, I just don't trust Fox because they'll give us The Martian, you know. So mm-hmm. they'll give us some good stuff, and they'll give us some real, real crap, some real shit. 
You know, right. and, and, but the problem is, even with a movie with a great cast and director like Apocalypse, you know, I just I, I don't feel like they've got Marvel's quality control team and brain team equivalent at Fox. You know, Simon Kimberg has done some really great stuff, but I don't know if he just likes all the power or they're just letting Singer. You know, I mean. You know, even someone like Singer, like, there's, like, 10% of the movie I would have loved for, like, a talented, experienced executive producer or producers to, to talk it over with Singer. And that's what Marvel does so well is get – and that's part of why Marvel gets young, inexperienced directors, by the way, so that they can tell them stuff and have the directors do it. Oh, isn't that interesting? Huh. Um, you know, it's not that they're controlling them. It's just they, they want directors who are young enough to be open-minded and listen – to the brain trust at Marvel Studios, and they have a brain trust. I don't know if if 20th Century Fox has a brain trust, and so right. I, I I kind of do hope this movie ends up in the Disney area uh, um, arena ultimately. Although I'm not sure that they'd be able to pull off Deadpool and a rated R Wolverine and so forth. Um, so yeah, I mean, so we know Deadpool two is happening, but that won't be for another you know almost two years. We got a final Wolverine movie next year, which will be rated R and set in the future. Apparently, two things that I love to hear. Um, right. So that should be great. Um, oh, really quickly, and then we'll wrap up. I'll let you do final thought and wrap up the the, the brief uh, Wolverine appearance appearance in this movie. Thoughts? Oh, it was so much fun. <laughs> I mean, who who knew that uh, we were going to get that much H Jack? Uh, and it was they just did. They just did a great job at using him in a in, in a in a uh, like a super cameo, um, and I guess I was a little bit shocked that it was as bloody as it was. You're not used to seeing that. Yep. Uh, so I think they pulled out all all the stops, and he's as freaking charismatic as he always is. He's so amazing. That is Hugh Jackman, the actor. Yeah, I don't know what's happened because. You know, I was I was doing my um, X Men Days of Future Past commentary many many months ago, but just re-listening to it, uh, Bizzlecast listeners, I'm not sure if this will, one we're doing here will drop before my Days of Future Past commentary. But you know, when he first wakes up in the 70s, he's like sleeping with some mob boss's daughter, and he <laughs> just he just slices them to bits. Right. But you don't see any blood, and that's really all the fighting that Wolverine does the whole movie, um, which is part of why it's his best performance, because dramatically he's just so great as sort of an advisor to young Charles in that movie. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm talking about, you, know, you go back to X2, and there's some really, really, really violent X um, Wolverine oh. fighting. Oh. Um, but this was way bloodier than anything we've seen before. And I'm wondering if this was as much an aesthetic tease as a character tease, if that makes sense. Well, sure. I mean, it, it could have been, for sure. You know, like they had to convince the censors to allow a minute and a half of, of a lot of bloodiness so that they could get people sp- psyched up for a rated R bloody as hell Wolverine movie. Right, right. Um. So, all right. Well, I mean, you know... I- Again, if if I had gone into this movie with super high expectations, I might have come out somewhat disappointed. Um, and I, I guess the, my last thought will be though is that the amount I liked it is not cor- uh, does not correlate as it normally would with rewatchability. Like 
the rewatchability for this movie, at least at the moment, maybe I just need some time, doesn't seem particularly high, even though I, I liked the viewing experience. And I'm cool with that, you know? Like, not every movie has to be a movie you see ten times. Right. Um, so, anyways, final thoughts about about it? Well, I think in terms of rewatchability, in some ways, I'd rather watch this, I think, a second and maybe a third time than Captain America a second or third time. I think it's just more dense and complicated and interesting. And yeah. But... On balance, you know, I wish this uh, this movie were getting a little bit more love than it is, and um, I don't agree with the Rotten Tomatoes kind of stuff. I think that uh, for me, like like I said in a different context several minutes ago, I love these ensemble casts and these actors are so great to yeah. to watch, and they they give us uh, really uh, memorable characters. So I mean, it's I just it's just a timing thing. I mean, think about it. Yeah, like you know. Batman v Superman had the terrible luck to come out right after Deadpool. Mm-hmm. And then Civil War had the great luck to come out right after Batman v Superman. And then X-Men had the terrible luck of coming right after Civil War. Um, the critics, you know, I mean, it, X-Men, this movie is getting blamed for problems in all of these comic book movies. And so there's like, it's almost like a, a catharsis by, by critics um, to take it out on X-Men. I don't think it's particularly fair, but you know, when they're forced to see... The problem is, a lot of these critics don't like comic book movies, but they have to watch them and review them. And so, yeah. when they're forced to see them, uh, I think they pick their spots to, to occasionally praise one like Cap and then you know rip into all the rest. I don't, that just could, could just be me. Well, you know, on that point, I, I've said this to you offline before, but that uh, New York Times review that I sent you earlier in the week, the guy was being uh, all snarky about this movie, look, looking down his his nose at it, but he came up with no supporting data to, you know, for, for his hypothesis. He was just, I think it felt like he just needed to, he thought he needed to be snarky about it, but he had nothing, he, you know, he had no, no, no ammo. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I can understand it just, just to the extent that, you know, what I liked about the movie is like, you can't put your finger on a little bit, but I also could see not being able to, put your finger on what you don't like about the movie Batman, yeah. Batman v Superman it's very easy to carve up all the things that were wrong about it this one's more difficult to carve up as you just pointed out is a lot of these writers are making general yeah. statements which yes, yes which, which hurts the credibility of, of their review it doesn't make the feeling they had of watching it less valid the fact that they didn't like it um, but it's, it's like you know it's like if you're, you're a music reviewer you're going to occasionally get sent stuff that objectively is, is you know, well done, but you just dislike intensely. And uh, I think it's just superhero fatigue. I do. I think if this was the first superhero movie released the year, and keep in mind, before Deadpool, the, 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 the previous superhero movie had been last July with Ant-Man. Oh. So there was right. like a seven, eight month period for critics and everyone else to, you know, take a deep breath. And I guess that'll be my final thought is just that, you know, movies like Creed and Martian and even Terminator Genesis, you know, it's just nice to have fun standalone Hollywood movies. Oh, absolutely. I more more of those. But uh as far as this movie, yes, I'm I'm, no. I'm more I'm more than a satisfied customer. Yeah, it was definitely beautiful to look at and mm-hmm. uh it just has a fun fun cast and you know, I mean to introduce four or five 
17, 18 year old characters right in the spotlight. A number of these actors haven't had a ton of experience and make it work and not feel like it's just like, you know, the X Men kindergarten show or whatever, you know? I mean, <laughs> right. It was right. totally smooth. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, 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 I did like it a lot. You know, it wasn't everything I wanted it to be, but as I mentioned earlier, maybe off, off, uh, Mike. You know, seeing all of these good and bad and in the middle comic book movies over the last couple of years, it makes you both appreciate, uh, you know, stuff in movies like this, but it also makes you appreciate how difficult it is to pull these movies off and how, you know, the, the, just the sheer volume of superhero movies is, is a little, a little overwhelming. And I'm excited to take a break mm-hmm. this summer. Um, so, uh, all right. Great. Well, this is great. Yeah. Any, any, uh, any last thoughts? Nope. Uh, that was fun. I'm, I'm glad we went to see it like I am pretty much everything else we see, and I'm looking forward to, to the next one. So thanks for including me. Absolutely. Thank in, you. In, in, in the world of Bizzle. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, BizzleCast listeners, and you'll be hearing, for us, uh, hearing from us soon.